Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 4, 1 Kings 4, page 304 of your Bibles. If you don't know where 1 Kings is, it is right before 2 Kings, okay? So Old Testament, you remember our study of David, we, we've really sort of picked up, what an original plan, picked up from David's successor, Solomon. And the, the, the driving theme is, is how Solomon ruled and led with wisdom, and we're certainly going to see that here this morning. First Kings chapter 4. We want to look at the whole chapter, but for, for the sake of time and for other reasons, we just want to read the first six verses and then we will mic our way through the chapter, Lord willing. With that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence of God's holy word. The writer of First Kings writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Aleharef and Ahijah, the son of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zebud, the son of Nathan, was priest and, and, and the king's friend. Ahishar was in charge of the palace, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of forced labor. Verses 7 to 19 is a list of more names. At the risk of mispronouncing them, we'll pause right there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, every time we gather and every time we open up your word, we ask for the same thing. That you and your grace, a grace that we are drowning in the ocean of, that you would help us to see your word, believe in your Son, and be transformed by your gospel. We ask that you would do it. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Proceeding. Not too long ago, a state worker was rummaging through the cabinets, and lo and behold, he found a, 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 a brass oil lamp. He pulled it out, he gave it a bit of a shine, and lo and behold, a genie popped out. And Jeannie says, you know, I've been in this, this lamp for so long, I will grant you any three wishes you ask. The man immediately said, I, I wish I were in tropical paradise. And boom, the man finds himself on an island. And he says, what I want is millions upon millions of dollars. And like that, gold appears on the island. He's wealthy beyond measure. The king of his own kingdom. He says, for my last wish, I want to never to have to work again. At which point the genie snaps his fingers and the state worker was back in his office. <laughs> That's funny right there. That's funny. I like that. That is hilarious. Oh, man. It's funny because it's true. Now, now. I'm willing to bet here, as, as, as we look at this text, and I, and I spared you from, from picking up in verse 7 where we get a list of more names, you would have thought the, the, the part of the Bible you always skipped was the genealogies, right? Whether it be Genesis 4 and 5 or First Chronicles or whatever it is, that you would just skip those parts of the Bible, thinking that they were the most difficult part and the most boring part. You wouldn't say that in church, of course, but you thought it. Well, I've got news for you. This is it. Right? This isn't just a list of, of names and who had kids. This is a list of state workers. Boring, right? You don't get any more boring than, than this. 
But what we need to see is happening in this is, is chapter 3 and 4 of 1 Kings really is one unit. In chapter 3, Solomon asks and is given wisdom. And you remember at the end of our study two weeks ago that Solomon demonstrated his wisdom by uh, determining the maternity of a child of two harlots, right? And so what we got was Solomon's gift of wisdom followed by Solomon's demonstration of that wisdom in a specific legal case. But what the camera, if you will, is doing is it zooms in on Solomon's administration in that area, and it zooms out, and that zooming continues in chapter 4. And so we pick up here in chapter 4 with looking at his administration. The big idea is to show that the wise flourish, and those who are under the, the, the leadership of the wise, they too flourish. Solomon would write in Proverbs 14, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tents of the upright will flourish. And we see that here in 1 Kings chapter 4. Notice, first of all, the blessing of Wisdom, the blessings of wisdom. Now, on the surface, this looks like a list of names that are tedious and unnecessary. Why would anyone in the 21st century care about Jehoshaphat as the recorder, whatever that means, or who Ben Abinadab married, right? Why would we care about any of this? But here we should see in these first 19 verses, we should immediately think of Moses. You remember that when Moses came and led the Israelites out of Egypt, he stopped at his wife's parents' house, right? Which is always nervous time, right? And remember, uh, Moses shows up and says, look, dad-in-law, I did what I said I was going to do. Look at all these people I'm leading out, out of Egypt. I liberated slaves from the mighty hand of Pharaoh. And Jephthah was like, man, that's awesome. There's one thing that you need to change. Moses, you're trying to do too much. Now, this runs in the male uh, uh, chromosomes, doesn't it? We men have a tendency to want to do too much. Not steak workers, of course, but most men try to do too much, right? And, and Jethro says, this isn't healthy. You're going to burn out. And, and this is too much for one man to, to take on. What you need to do is to create a system of delegation. Surround yourself with trusted advisors and elders who can handle some of these things so that you can focus on the broader picture. And that's what Moses did. What we see Solomon does is he begins his rule and reign by establishing a structure that is good, not just for him, but for everyone involved. So you see how it's set up in verses 1 to 6, which is what we read. We meet Solomon's executive cabinet. The language here is high officials, much as our president has a, uh, 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 has a cabinet. So did Solomon. And you can see these names. We, we looked at them there. Some of these names will, will, will be familiar to us, but most of them are lost to us. We, for example, we don't know much about Ali Horif, right? We don't know much about him. We've met already Jehoshaphat, who had served under David. Uh, Benaiah, you may recall, he's the guy carrying out all of the king's executions in chapter uh, 3. Um, and then, of course, Zadok had served under uh, David and had helped carry the Ark of the Covenant. So some of these names that, that we know. Under that, so you have an executive cabinet, right? These would be your secretaries of state. These would be your military commanders. These would be those sort of roles. Under that, we have a list of what we could call the royal cabinets. These are 12 
uh, governors, if you will, who, um, who, who are throughout the kingdom, their primary job is to collect taxes. Not the only thing they do, but that's one of the primary things, at least in this text, we're told that they do. Now, we need to know these are not the 12 tribes of Israel. Rather, these are 12 regions or districts throughout Israel that even goes into the land of the Amorites, right? Um, and this, so you see verse 19, Geber ruled the Gentile country, the Amorites, whom David had subdued. And you remember the Amorites had as their king in the time of Moses, Og, who was a giant, right? And, and here you see um, the, the fulfillment of the promises of Moses and Joshua fulfilled and that you have Israel ruling the land of the Amorites, under, of course, the reign of Solomon. Now, the point of these details is to explain how the wise king organized his kingdom, how a system, how this system and structure is put together required great wisdom. And this is true across the board. Any organization, whether it be political, religious, or in the marketplace, any system from Boy Scouts to a baseball team to a church requires a structure that makes it functional, right? And you can have systems that are, that are too structured. You can have systems that aren't structured enough. But every system and organization needs one. If, if you grew up like I did reading church growth books, right? And after you've read one church growth book published in the 90s and early 2000s, you've read them all essentially, right? This is true of a lot of books, frankly. But, but one of the things you'll find in church growth books is they all will give you the same information. It's all rooted in uh, statistics and studies, right? That is that the number one thing that keeps churches from reaching a, a new level of growth. So, so let's say you have a small church that's growing. That church will plateau, and we know what level they will plateau. They will plateau between 150 and 200. Across the board, around the nation, you hit 150 to 200, they'll plateau. They can have extreme growth and plateau. And you can look at churches, let's say, that, that hit about 500 or something like that. They, too, will plateau. Why is that? What is keeping those organizations from growing? Structure. Think about it. A church of 150 to 200, you can expect the preacher to know everyone's name and probably know half their cousins. When I was a pastor in the rural area before coming to Frankfurt, I spent... Uh, I went to more family reunions of people I didn't hardly know than I did my own family and my wife's family, right? Because in a small rural church, the preacher has to know everybody. Not only do you have to know everybody, you got to know everybody that everybody knows. You hit a certain point at 200. That structure doesn't work. And so a church has to restructure itself, right? This is true of your business, right? If you're going to start a business, you got two employees, you can manage it. You have 20 employees, you need help. And so it requires wisdom. Now, when a structure is wisely put together, not only are those at the top blessed, but so are those who are in that structure. So what we see in this text is two things to point out. First of all, Solomon's system of government was well-organized. Everyone in the kingdom knew who was in charge and who was trusted with certain responsibilities. There was a clear chain of command. And these men brought on by Solomon were competent and had the trust of the king. Leaders uh, are often limited by those who work with them and for them, right? And so this is the problem with corruption in government or any other system. 
When people are chosen based off of favors and connections, those being led suffer. But that's not the system that you have here. These are men who have proven to be competent and have the trust of the kings, well-organized. Not only that, but Solomon's kingdom is not oppressive. This is unique in ancient history, really unique in human history in general. Every nation requires the collection of taxes, right? And there is no getting around that. Government does not create. It can only organize, regulate, and distribute wealth. It's, it's, it, it, it cannot create wealth. As such, it must rely on taxes. Governments can be draconian with this tax policy like Rome was in the time of Jesus. Or governments can limit itself which it seems to be what Solomon does here. The 12 uh, regions, if you will, their job was to provide for a 12th of the government's system, right? So, so you're going to collect taxes here, and you're going to contribute to a 12th of the nation's tax base. So if you will, you'll pay taxes for a month, and you're done the rest of the year, right? That was the thinking, okay? So you contribute over here, they contribute over there, and it is shared across the board. It isn't oppressive. It isn't draconian. Uh, rather, it is responsible, understanding this is a necessary evil, if you will, uh, but it doesn't need to be oppressive. The goal of government, Solomon's government, was not to oppress or to control. It was to provide a system that allowed the nation itself to thrive. Now, the big idea here uh, of, this, of these first 19 verses is to demonstrate how leadership, wise leadership, trickles down. It trickles down. Throughout history, men have usually sought the throne for the sake of power. If you have all the power, what else do you want, need in life, right? You just study history that people seek power. Solomon sought blessing. Not to receive blessing, but to be a blessing. Solomon's approach to authority and leadership and, 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 and government is unique in human history. Because of his wise leadership, not only did he enjoy the blessing of a good system, but the system itself under his leadership was a blessing to everyone else. This is the way it works. Now, you may hear thinking like, preacher, that's all good and fine, but, but I ain't ever going to be king. I'm never going to be queen. No, you and I, there's a high chance we ain't going to. However, God has called us in various roles of responsibility that if we live with gospel wisdom, there will be a trickle-down effect of blessing to those we're called to serve. Maybe you're a dad. Maybe you're a wife. Maybe you're, you're, you have management uh, or you're in management or, or, or maybe you're, you're a leader of some type here in the church or here in our community or at your workplace, whatever it is, that to, to lead and to love with wisdom is a blessing to those under your leadership. If your goal is to suck up all the power and to get all of the attention and influence, the people under you will suffer. But if your goal is to have Christ-like servant heart to be a blessing to others with wise leadership, you will be a blessing to them. And as a result, you will receive a blessing. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 20. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed 
are his children after him. Now, again, that's true not just of a father and a mother, but of a husband and a wife, of a church leader, of a of, of, of workplace, of government, whatever it might be. So here, right away, what looks like a list of names that most of us couldn't care less about is really a camera zooming out saying, here, he's not only leading in the private affairs, he's leading in his government structure. And look how people are blessed by it. So we see the blessing of wisdom. Not only that, we see the abundance of wisdom. Not only was Solomon's kingdom a blessing, it was a source of great abundance, and the people under him enjoyed the abundance of it. Notice there, verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. If you know your Bible, that language should sound familiar. The promise of God to the patriarchs was that I will make your descendants as the stars of the sky and the sand by the sea. If you want the reference, look at Genesis 22 with Abraham, Genesis 32 with Jacob. And if you want another reference, look at Joshua in Joshua chapter 11 when he enters the promised land saying God is keeping his promises. And right away we are told that God has kept his promises. Now what we need to see here is that population growth, we know this sociologically, is tied to a number of things. At the top of the list, religious fidelity. Just look at the studies right now where there are secularism, populations are declining. Where there is high rates of religiosity, populations are climbing. In the United States right now, we, are, we, are, we, we, we will soon hit a peak population, we'll start to collapse. You're already seeing this, right? Retirees. Used to be you had one retiree for like 10 workers. Now it's like one retiree for one worker. That's why there's a deficit for your Social Security. Enjoy it. It won't be there for me. But you enjoy it while you can, okay? You see this already that, that it used to be 20 years ago that the average construction worker was about the age of 32. Now he's about 42. Why? Because in secular society, we prioritize money over marriage and careers over children. We prioritize the self. And so the, the number of children we're having is dropping like crazy. You go to more religious societies, Islamic societies, uh, African societies where Christianity dominates, where you're going to find large families. So not only does religious fidelity contribute to population, so does economic security. We've done enough studies that in periods of deep recession and depression, the, 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 the birth rate drops. In periods of like in the 80s and, and, and the, the, the boomer years and whatnot, what you see is economic uh, uh, security leads to larger families. Finally, political stability. If you're constantly at war, you're going to drop in population. Why? You're killing the kids. What does Solomon have here? All three. We saw this in, in chapters 2 and 3, religious fidelity. We have economic security and political stability. You see the abundance of the nation. It's seen in that homes are full of babies and children. God is blessing them. They are abundant. We see population in verse 20. We also see pleasure in the rest of verse 20. They ate and drank and were happy. And Solomon ruled over the land of, from the Euphrates, that is the river. Your translation probably just says the river. Um, to the land of the Philistines, to the border of Egypt. Notice this is a massive amount of space. So, so not only are they growing in population, they are abundant in pleasure. Throughout the Bible, feasting is associated with God's favor. And this will be demonstrated in the future kingdom of God. For example, in Ezekiel 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, rich food, full of marrow, and aged wine, well-refined. Jesus often associates the coming kingdom of God with a banquet. 
Matthew 8, 11, for example, I tell you, many will come from east and west, recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Well, we get this, right? When we want to celebrate as a church, as families, as individuals, it's going to involve food. Your anniversary, I bet you went out to eat. Not because you weren't original. Hey, honey, we're going to do your anniversary. Food. Oh, that's a good idea. It's what we did last year. It's because we associate food and feasting with, with abundance, with joy, with celebration, with pleasure. And that's what it is that you see here. So we see population. We see pleasure. In verses 22 to 28, we see property. Now, this may be worth diving into a little bit. Solomon's provisions for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from the Tiphish, you can't pronounce it either, uh, to Gaza, over all the kingdoms west of the Euphrates. He had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine, under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Notice here that you have property. In fact, what a lot of people do is they look at these, these, this amount of food that Solomon has at his table, and they say, that is, that is crazy. I don't know what a core is, but from people who act like they know what it is, they estimate that Solomon is bringing in enough food every day to feed 15 to 36,000 people. Every day. That's a big farm. Every day. That's like all of Kroger uh, re replenished every day. That's crazy. Remember that Franklin County is a little over 50,000 people. He could feed almost the entire county of, 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 of Franklin County every day. It's crazy amount. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking to yourself, self, that's outlandish. There's no way of that. And let's not forget how much food we waste in this country every single year. A family of four will waste thousands of dollars in food that will go right into the trash. Right now in your refrigerator is expired food that six months from now you'll throw away. You bought it with good intentions? Man, we waste so much food. But the point is not the specifics. It is to see that the land has become bountiful. They are living in the land flowing with milk and honey. So property, peace, verse 24 and 25. That Notice there the language is, is that although David was a man of war, Solomon was, was a man of peace. No one went to war against Solomon because of their great might. Every man, the text says, under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the, land, this is the language of Eden. Just as Adam and Eve had the tree of life, so the citizens of Solomon's kingdom had their own tree with abundance. In fact, we're running out of time. Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 to 10, describes that, the, that, that, that God has given them a land flowing, yes, with milk and honey, but also it's flowing with vine trees and fig trees. And that you will eat bread without scarcity, Moses says. Solomon experiences that for his people. Finally, there is the abundance of Proverbs. We looked at this briefly last or two weeks ago. It's verses uh, 26 to, to 34. This is where it gives us the specifics of he spoke this many Proverbs and people from around the nations came. And we'll see that with Queen of Sheba and whatnot. But, but the writer concludes this section to summarize. Notice again that the camera, he, he gets his wisdom, Solomon as an individual. It pulls out, now Solomon is dealing with private affairs. He's pulling out, you see his government. He's pulling out, you see his nation. You're pulling out, and he says, all because Solomon was gifted with wisdom, and he ruled with wisdom. The people were blessed, and the people 
flourished. Israel had finally become the light to the nations. There's a temptation here I suspect most preachers would fall for. The temptation here is to use this text as an excuse to rant about our country. That's always the cheap way out of the Bible. If you don't know what the text means, complain about your country. Complain about the political side that you don't like. It is tempting to do that. After all, you look at Solomon's leadership. You look at the nation of Israel under him, and then you turn on your telly. You, you look at the news. You scroll through your social media, and you realize this is not that. And the temptation is for us to simply rant about it. The writer of 1 Kings assumes that the reader and the nation they hail from is nothing in comparison to this. That's the assumption of the text. The assumption is there's no way that the nation you live in looks like this. This was a rare moment in history in which the effects of the fall, at least for a time, were reversed. And the hope of the Jewish patriarchs were realized. The fact that America has failed to bring shalom is sort of the point. This moment in history under his wise leadership was short-lived. And we have been living under the oppression of sin and ruin ever since. So I don't think the point of this text is we need to elect more people like us. We, we need to change more policies and made in our image. I don't think that's the main point of the text. One of the things we see in the text is good luck with that. In fact, by going in that direction, you're falling for the trap. We've been trying that for thousands of years, and what we get in the end is nothing like this. Part of me wonders, why doesn't the Bible end here? Think about it. The Bible opens up with a couple under a tree. Everything's fine. They're living shalom. And then the serpent enters into the narrative, the dragon of Od. And he, through, through temptation and seduction, they, they choose the wisdom of man over the wisdom of God. And what you get is the fall of humanity. Murder and ruin and chaos and pillaging and rape and violence and poverty and, and everything else. It's just one story after another. And the reader reads this. And, and when we start rooting for a guy, what do they do? They let us down again. Cain will murder Abel. Noah will, will, will get drunk and curse his grandson. Abraham will, will, will trade his wife for, for a slave. Uh, uh, you know, you could keep going down the road. But along the way, the Bible says, but there's good news here. The day will come when one will roll back the effects of the fall. He will come. And we're teased with hints of what this will look like. He'll be born of a woman. He'll be a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He'll be of the tribe of Judah, a king with a royal scepter in his hand. Like a lion, he will rule and reign and bring peace. And then we meet a David, right? Because we've been told he's going to be a shepherd. And David comes and he, he brings peace through warfare and he dies. And it is his son born of a woman through difficult circumstances that rises. And it is if he is eating of the tree of life and not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
And what, is he, what do we get from this? We get a taste of what it is that we long for. We get a picture of what it is we're trying to create in our own nation, in our own homes, in our own hearts. Don't you wish the Bible just ended there? Because that seems to be what the Bible is wanting us to do. That's the story arc. David, remember, slayed uh, giants and with, with dragon imagery throughout. So we would expect this is where the Bible ends. Solomon is the one in whom we've been waiting for. But this story that we read here is short-lived. It doesn't take long before we discover that wisdom alone is insufficient. Those who lived under his rule enjoyed his peace, unique in history, only for a time. Before long, this glorious kingdom collapsed under the weight of what wisdom cannot and will never cure, and that is sin. Wisdom was no match for folly. Love was no match for lust. Honor was no match for power. And contentment was no match for greed. Before long, Solomon's kingdom collapsed under the weight of sin. Solomon, as we saw, may have been a true and better Moses. He's probably even a true and better David. But what we need is a true and better Solomon. And it is here where we, we see the good parts of Solomon's reign, and we long for the recovery of that. Let our hearts long for something far greater. Let us not settle for a king on a throne whose name is Solomon. Let us settle for a savior who rules from eternal king, uh, rules from eternal throne and brings with them a better kingdom. If you read this text to rant about our nation, you have settled for the kingdom of man when Christ comes, a descendant of Solomon, and he offers you the kingdom of God, far better than anything you can have that man can provide. Christ came to defeat the cancer of our souls. And having done so, he brings with them a kingdom, a true and better kingdom, one in which even now in this godless age, we can sit under the provisions of God's vine and fig tree. Even now, we can live in the kingdom of God despite the ruin of the kingdom of man, right now. But first, we must receive Christ and forgiveness of our sins. We must receive from Christ what Solomon never could give. He could give wisdom, but he could never destroy folly. He could offer love, but he could never conquer lust. He could provide abundance, but he could never resolve greed. And here comes Christ, who takes it all upon himself, so that we can be free to walk in wisdom without sin. And not only should we receive Christ here this morning, let us today choose a better kingdom. A better kingdom. In Zechariah chapter 3, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, the high priest of Israel has a vision where he is standing before God himself, the angel of the Lord actually, but it's God himself. And he is covered in excrements. And, and the, the, the story is, is in the context of the, the, 
the the uh, day when the priest goes into the to, to the holy of holies. He he is to be as clean as possible, and yet he's covered like this in filth. And there is Satan, the accuser, saying, "That's your people. Those are the ones you chose. Look at him. He's filthy. He's ugly. He's he's full of sin and shame and guilt." And there the angel of the Lord cleanses him. He washes him. He puts on a new robe. He gives him a new turban. And the turban, we know the priest would say, holy unto the Lord. Not because the priest did all the right rituals, but because Christ here has cleansed him with his righteousness. And the text ends there in Zechariah 3.10. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you, will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. See, the root of this text is the hope of that vine and fig tree, a return to Eden, not the Eden of Solomon, but the Eden of Christ. We are to long for that kingdom. And Christ has brought that kingdom, which should be made visible among the people of God that we walk in wisdom, we seek righteousness, and we slay sin. But we can't get there by trusting in a king. We must first come to a savior. Long for this sort of kingdom. And we can experience it even here and now. So maybe you're here and you've never embraced Christ, I ask that you would do that for the forgiveness of your sins forevermore. Maybe you're here and you have settled for something far less. There is something far greater offered to you. Choose the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be so